Hey gang, welcome back. You're listening to the RR Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and today I'm recording from my hotel room in fabulous Fort St. Nowhere. I'm up here for another week of locums, and what a week it's been. I have so many super interesting cases that I want to share with you, and it's only Wednesday. All right, the clock is ticking, so let's get started. The topic of this episode is aggressive, potentially violent patients. It happens, and it can be scary. I've had two this week, and so I'm going to tell you about these cases later on in the episode. Our learning objectives for this particular episode, number one, what are your priorities in addressing a potentially violent situation? Number two, how do you safely approach a potentially violent patient, and what is the end goal? And number three, what are some good pharmacologic cocktails and approaches? Okay, number one, what are your priorities in addressing a potentially violent patient? This is a really important concept that was never really addressed in my medical training. However, when I was 19, I joined the BC Ambulance Service, and for the next 12 years, while going to university and med school and residency, I continued to work part-time as a primary care paramedic. It was an amazing experience and definitely made me a better emergency physician and flight physician when I took a contract with the RFDS, that's the Australian Royal Flying Doctor Service. Anyway, being a paramedic taught me a few critical concepts that were otherwise never taught during my medical education. And now, here is the single most important takeaway from this entire episode. When it comes to safety, your priorities must be, first and foremost, yourself, second, your partner or your team, and then third, and finally, if you still have time and energy left over, the patients. I know this often sounds strange and contradictory the first time someone hears it, but it is so true. As first responders, one works in an uncontrolled environment with all sorts of hazards. Cars racing past you on the highway, random sketchy people in a back alleyway, walking into the neighborhood crack house that is potentially in complete disrepair with electrical wires exposed, has who knows what in terms of toxins and biological contaminants and other hidden hazards. But when we work in a hospital, we're rapidly lulled into a false sense of security because all these things are controlled for, for the most part, and we assume because we are reasonable people and because most of our patients are reasonable people that this is going to be a safe place. But then one day you walk down a hallway of your department and someone high on meth sticks a gun in your face and demands your wallet and all the narcotics in the hospital. I truly hope that this experience never ever happens to you, but it could happen. And work aside, if you want to live a long, healthy life, safety has to be a major consideration. And that includes when you're at work in the emergency department. And so again, when it comes to safety, your priorities must always be first and foremost, yourself first, second, your partner or your team, and third, if you still have time and energy left over, then the patients. You are no use to your team if you're injured and vice versa. Indeed, an injured care worker becomes a liability to the team and will definitely reduce the time and energy that could otherwise have been spent caring for the patient. Okay, enough said, time for a case. It's 1 a.m. in Fort St. Nowhere, and I'm called to the emergency department because the RCMP have brought in a 40-year-old male with a known psychotic disorder, and he's also known to be non-compliant with his medications. He was feeling suicidal this evening. He told his family he was going to go jump in front of a train. Family went and got him from the tracks, brought him to the hospital, and they got as far as the parking lot. The family then pleaded for two hours to try and get this patient to come inside, but eventually he got tired and he walked off, and so they called the RCMP. Now, it took three police officers to physically control this person to get him back into the police cruiser, and now the cruiser is parked inside the ambulance bay. The patient's sitting on the back bench, locked inside with his hands handcuffed behind his back, and he's giving me a death stare through the window like he wants to rip my face off. 
Okay, so learning objective number two. How do you safely approach a potentially violent patient and what is your end goal? I think that answer really depends on where you are and where the patient needs to be. In a typical Fort St. Nowhere community, the answer probably is something like, the patient needs to be pharmacologically restrained and possibly physically restrained for safety. And the best way to do that is with all hands on deck, using every available security guard, nurse, doctor, janitor, and so on to hold a limb Plus, assign someone else to manage the airway and have that airway person apply an oxygen mask as necessary to control spitting, to mitigate biting risk, and for actual airway management, of course. And then to administer a rapid-acting IM sedative through the clothing if necessary, and there's literature supporting the safety in injecting sedatives right through the clothing when necessary. Then, hold for a couple of minutes until the patient begins to relax, and then slowly release grips and apply physical restraints as needed. What position is the best to secure this person in? The answer is really whatever is easiest and safest to obtain. What is the best location to give the IM injection in? Any largish muscle group on a limb. After that, they need an involuntary admission certificate, commonly referred to in Alberta as a Form 1 or in British Columbia as a pink sheet, and they need to be driven a few hours to the nearest psychiatric facility. That's more or less the typical approach in your standard Fort St. Nowhere type rural remote Canadian community. However, in another style of rural remote community, and I'm going to use Moose Factory Ontario as an example of a fly-in only community, that patient is going to have to be transported by air. And in the case of Moose Factory, in the springtime, it means a five minute helicopter ride over the river, followed by a two hour flight by plane to a city. So the restraint process here, an involuntary certification is the same, but the need for air transportation complicates matters. Wait, what? Why does air transportation make a difference? Okay, so first of all, with road transport, it's generally much easier to find and convince a police officer to accompany the patient for the ride. Jurisdictional issues, time away from the community, and so on factor into this. It's much easier when you have a road transport than an air transport to convince a police officer to hop on board. Second of all, in a worst case scenario, if a seemingly sedated patient ends up escalating and going berserk, you can just pull over onto the side of the road, open up the doors, and encourage them to run off into the field, hopefully, and not across the highway, and then call the cops. That is not an option in an airplane. In fact, about 15 years ago, there's a sad case of a psychotic but sedated patient in the Northwest Territories being transported by air. Apparently, he escalated in the back of the airplane, broke free of whatever restraints were in place, and at 27,000 feet over the tundra, he managed to wrench open the back door of a pressurized King Air aircraft, which is a pretty impressive feat in and of itself, and he jumped. I'm not sure his body was ever found, but the reality is that he would have been unconscious from hypoxemia and hypothermia long before he impacted. The real miracle in this story is that the flight crew and the medical team were okay and still managed to land the plane safely. An instantaneous decompression of an airplane can be potentially fatal. First, it can suck unsecured items and possibly occupants out of the airplane, which is bad enough, but especially bad if those things then impact and damage the tail control surfaces of the airplane. Second, and in any case, time of useful consciousness in a rapid decompression event at that altitude is no more than 90 seconds. So the pilot has to initiate an emergency dive and aim to drop 10,000 feet as fast as safely possible. Not to mention the cabin temperature suddenly drops about 50 degrees Celsius. So kind of a big deal with slightly more significant consequences than pulling over in an ambulance and hoping that the patient chooses to run in the direction of the field and not across the highway. When I did my orientation training with the RFDS in Queensland, the training officer, Dr. Min Lekong, told me, yeah, 
when you have a psychotic passion who's aggressive, look, you just intubate him, mate. And this blew me away. I'm sorry, you're saying you want me to intubate a patient because of a psychiatric illness? Yeah, mate. You can sedate him if you want, but most of us just tube him and give him a GI to keep him safe. So admittedly, I was totally skeptical with this at first, but with time and experience, I realized there is a lot of wisdom in this advice. And in fact, if someone asked me to accompany an aggressive patient on a flight today, I would hands down intubate them, put them into a full out general anesthetic coma and still physically restrain them. Anyway, something to keep in mind as you choose drugs if you're in a place where a potentially dangerous patient needs to be transported by air. All right, back to my case. So remember, there's a 40-year-old psychotic staring at me, plotting my homicide while handcuffed in the back of the police cruiser. I ask the cop to wind down the window so I can talk to him through the bars. Hi, I'm Dr. Wallace. I hear you're having a rough night. What's going on? He gives me a death stare, and then he kicks the cruiser's door as hard as he can with both of his feet. Right, so probably not going to respond favorably to a hot cup of chamomile and my favorite purple scented candles. So I try again. All right, my friend, we need to get you into the hospital safely. It looks like I'm going to have to give you something to calm you down. To which he responds something like, No forking way you're coming near me, shirthead. Yeah, I borrowed that from The Good Life on Netflix. Check it out. Alright, so it's drug choice time. Learning objective number three. What are some good pharmacologic cocktails and approaches? My favorite cocktail is the B-52, purely because of its name. B-52 stands for Benadryl, and then five of Haloperidol, and two of Lorazepam, all given intramuscularly. I don't use it though, instead I just use the 52 part. Haloperidol, 5 milligrams, and lorazepam, 2 milligrams. And if they seem to have EPS symptoms, then I might give the anticholinergic later on, but in practice, I rarely need that. What are EPS symptoms? That's the extrapyramidal side effects, and those occur from central acting dopamine antagonist medications, most classically haloperidol and other older antipsychotic drugs. Symptoms of EPS include restlessness, muscle contractures, and tremors. So it's haloperidol 5-IM and lorazepam 2-IM, and that's based on decades of psychiatry literature. And it does the job in the vast majority of cases, but it's suboptimal because it's slower in onset and more unpredictable in onset. Kind of like how morphine is best known and most widely used as the go-to opiate in emergency, even though it's suboptimal causing nausea and other histaminergic side effects. See episode four for more details on that though. So what are other perhaps better options to haloperidol 5 and lorazepam 2? First, better antipsychotic drug choices include droperidol, which is a great single agent, quicker in onset and much cleaner. The dose here is five to 10 milligrams IM, but due to industry reasons, it disappeared for 10 years from the North American market. The good news is it's back in North America now, and if you have it, it is the best first line choice. Droperidol, 5 to 10 milligrams IM. Olanzapine is another great single agent drug that is also quicker and cleaner than haloperidol. It's the same dose as droperidol, 5 to 10 milligrams IM. So give 5 for the elderly, 10 for the larger, burlier type people, and see how it goes. So if these agents are better, then why do I even bother mentioning haloperidol in the first place? Let's be real, most rural departments have limited drug choices. And while lots of departments don't have any of the newer options, I have yet to go to a hospital that does not have access to haloperidol. Okay, so now let's talk about combining medications, uh, antipsychotic with a benzo versus just single agent. It's true, you don't need a benzo with these single agent drugs, but still, if you combine them, 
then probably you're going to get away with lower doses and less side effects than the single higher dose agent. Instead of using lorazepam, which has unpredictable IM absorption, use midazolam intramuscularly instead. The dosing is the same, so 2 mg IM in conjunction with one of the antipsychotic agents. Just be cautious with larger doses than 2 mg, as midazolam does tend to induce a bit more respiratory depression than lorazepam. What that means is you may need to apply oxygen. I can't imagine anyone, unless they're profoundly frail, requiring bag mask ventilation with just 2 mg of midazolam. Benzos may afford some desirable side effects as well. For example, if your patient's intoxicated with, say, crystal meth or other substances, the effects of a benzo will help smooth things out and help increase the seizure threshold. Thus, decreasing the antipsychotic dose, say, olanzapine to 5 mg, and adding in midazolam 2 mg, might be quite advantageous in intoxicated aggressive patients or other patients who might benefit from the side effects of benzos. Okay, so there's the basis for some great 52 cocktails. Combining an antipsychotic like droperidol, olanzapine, or haloperidol, 5 mg IM, with a benzo like midazolam or lorazepam, 2 mg IM, or you can just use one of the cleaner antipsychotics as a sole agent, droperidol or olanzapine in the 5 to 10 mg IM range. So that's great sedation if sedation is your goal. However, as mentioned, there are times when you may need to skip sedation and go straight to a general anesthetic level of control because you know they're going to have to be flown out or just because they're so high risk you can't afford to wait 15 or more minutes for the other sedatives to work more slowly. In this case, it's a little of Uncle Jonathan's favorite drug from back in episode 3, vitamin K, the one and only ketamine. That's right, drop a very healthy IM dose of 5 milligrams per kilogram and give it IM. Note that ketamine comes in a concentration of 50 milligrams per milliliter. So let's do a little bit of math. For a 100 kilogram patient, five milligrams per kilogram would be 500 milligrams. And at 50 milligrams per milliliter, the dose would be 10 milliliters. But can you give 10 milliliters IM? And can you give it all in one injection site? The answer is yes. Indeed, the literature tells us that you can give up to 20 milliliters in a single IM site. Please don't try to do divided doses in an agitated fighting patient. Load it all up in one syringe and just fire that sucker into the leg muscle through the genes and be done with it. Good night, sweet prince. And by the way, with ketamine 5 milligrams per kilo, I would not be anticipating any apnea or desaturations though I would want the stretcher and the SpO2 monitor and the oxygen mask in easy reach just in case. This dose of ketamine intramuscularly simply subdues the patient. If you're proceeding to intubation, you now have time to get an IV, get prepared, drop a little supportive induction medication, though you may only really require a paralytic on top of that IM dose. The point is though, that with five milligrams per kilo of ketamine IM, your immediate safety crisis will be resolved within three to five minutes. I'm not sure of anything that works faster than that in an intramuscular administration. And you're not jacking around for 15 or more minutes like you might be with the classic B52 haloperidol lorazepam cocktail. All right, back to my case. So what drugs did I choose for the patient in the back of the cruiser? Well, this particular instance of Fort St. Nowhere just happens to be the designated regional psychiatric facility. And it's amazing. I've never worked anywhere like it for mental health. Not only are there three police officers with this patient, I also have three hospital-based police officers. Additionally, we have four seclusion rooms in the hospital, 
And not just seclusion rooms for decorative purposes. You know what I mean, the seclusion room that was built with the hospital but is now repurposed for storage of old useless equipment or COVID isolation or the crappy gynae room or whatever. Anyway, the point is, in this case, I'm not looking to GA this guy. I'm not looking to transport him. I'm only needing to control him enough to get him into a seclusion room, let him sleep the night, and then a psychiatrist can see him the next morning when he's hopefully a little bit more mel. So, I ordered haloperidol, 5 milligrams IM, combined with lorazepam, 2 milligrams IM, mainly out of blissful ignorance because I hadn't yet had the opportunity to do the reading around this topic. And now I go and I tell the patient, look, we're going to give you an injection to calm you. And he totally cuts me off by reminding me that there's no way I'm putting any of my forking shirt in his body. So I correct him and say, look, I'm not asking, buddy. Out of courtesy, I'm just simply telling you that you're going to be getting a shot and then we'll be moving into one of our safe rooms. So if you can relax and cooperate, it's going to be a little bit easier on you. Next, the police officers open both back doors and he doesn't calm down and he doesn't cooperate. So two grab his shoulders and lay him down on the bench, two grab his feet from the other side of the car. Our nurse gives him a shot in his shoulder and then they close the doors and they let him sit in the police cruiser. And what am I doing, you ask? Well, I'm thinking this is gonna make a great podcast episode and so I start a timer on my watch. At the five minute mark, I go and I reassess him. Let's call him Dave. Hey Dave, how's it going? And he looks a little glassy eyed by this point. He says, take me to your leader. Cool. At the 10 minute mark, I check him again. Hey Dave, how are you feeling? I don't respond to the name Dave, he says. Oh, what should I call you? Sir. Okay. Hey sir, how are you feeling? Long pause. Uh, pretty good, I guess. Cool. At the 15 minute mark, I check him again, but now he's in the seclusion room, eyes closed with physical restraints in place, and the cops are already gone. I ask one of our hospital security guys how it went, and he tells me just fine. I ask, did Dave put up a fight? No, not at all. So that was pretty smooth. Dave ended up sleeping all night, and the next morning he was back to his usual paranoid self, glaring through the window of the seclusion room at anyone who walked past him. Okay, how are we doing for time? Oh, we still got a couple minutes. Okay, let me tell you about the second case I had. So in this particular instance of Fort St. Nowhere, this psychiatric facility, there's this weird rule where if the psychiatric unit is full, the psychiatrist cannot admit the patient officially, and thus they remain under the care of the emergency physician, even though they might be housed in one of the psychiatric unit seclusion rooms. And that is what was going on this evening. So after I saw Dave in the back of the police cruiser, I was called over to one of the psychiatric seclusion rooms to see a patient that the psychiatrist had already interviewed and was planning to admit pending a discharge. This particular lady was about 30 years old and was also diagnosed with a psychotic disorder and was quite agitated. I had a security officer with me and so we opened the door and I introduced myself, asked her what was going on, and then she gave me an earful, wouldn't let me get a word in edgewise. Something about being kept there against her will, not having access to her medications, and we were all evil people and we were going to lose our jobs, and so on. So that wasn't very productive. And so I went and I read the psychiatry notes, and the recommendation from the psychiatrist was to use olanzapine 5 milligrams and lorazepam 2 milligrams to sedate the patient if she became agitated. And again, at this point, I hadn't had the chance to do any reading around this topic, so that's what I ordered. Olanzapine 5 milligrams sublingual, and two milligrams of lorazepam sublingual. And this patient was aggressive, but she was verbally aggressive and not physically aggressive. And so the nurse was able to go in there and convince her to take these medications sublingually. 
Suffice it to say, within 10 minutes she had settled nicely and we were able to then go back in, have a chat with her, and properly address her concerns. So I share this case in order to highlight the difference between types of agitated patients, and they fall on a spectrum. Sometimes you have someone who is agitated and mouthy, but they settle with just a little bit of gentle reassurance. Didn't happen to have one of those this night. And then if they get a little bit more aggressive, they get very mouthy and don't necessarily settle or respond to rationalization. And that's the level of agitation of the second patient. And then if they get more agitated, then they get very physically violent and very dangerous, much like Dave in the first example. And so the level of therapy and intervention really needs to be tailored to the level of aggression and danger. For someone who responds simply to reassurance, perhaps having a family member or a security guard just sit with them and converse with them will keep them reoriented and on track and safe, and you don't need to sedate them at all. However, someone who is verbally aggressive might be convinced to take an oral medication and you can avoid the trauma of having to hold them down and give them an injection, which is a pretty barbaric thing to have to do. However, there are circumstances, like with Dave, where really the only safe thing for the patient and everyone else is to get them held down, get that IM injection into them, and give them time for it to settle. So gang, I have one final case that I would love to share with you, but I'm running out of time and I just can't shoehorn it in. So I'm going to cheat. I'm going to wrap this episode up officially now. But after the outro plays, I will present my third and final case. And you're welcome to stick around if you're interested. All right, so let's recap the learning objectives from this episode. Number one, what are your priorities in addressing a potentially violent situation? Again, if there's one thing you take away from this podcast, take away this. When it comes to safety, your priorities must be first and foremost yourself, second, your partner or your team, and then third, if you still have time and energy left over, then you can look after the patients. Number two, how do you safely approach a potentially violent patient and what is the end goal? Remember, approach with as large a crowd as you can muster, approach with a clear team plan and a loaded syringe, and try to assign one person per limb as well as someone for the airway and someone to manage the syringe. And learning objective number three, what are some good pharmacologic cocktails and approaches? First, remember the tried and true Haloperidol 5 Lorazepam 2 IM. It works and maybe it's all you have access to in your rural facility. Remember that it is slower and less predictable, so be patient and give at least 15 minutes before you contemplate a redose. More modern agents are ideal if you have access to them. This would include single agent droperidol, 5 to 10 milligrams IM, or single agent olanzapine, 5 to 10 milligrams IM. You can also reduce those doses to the low end of that scale and add in midazolam as a more desirable IM benzo. Just remember, the M in midazolam stands for muscular. Make sure if you're using midazolam that you have an SpO2 monitor and an oxygen mask within reach to consider in a few minutes just in case you need it. Sedation using any of these drugs is great if it is relatively easy to get your patient to psychiatry. And by that, I mean it's just a short road trip and they won't be with you for too long. If you're looking to fly the patient though, very seriously contemplate using ketamine, five milligrams per kilogram IM to gain control and then intubate them on your own time and maintain them with very heavy sedation for the safety of both the patient and the air crew in transport. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and if this is a topic that you find interesting, you may want to check out MCRIT episode 279. I'll link to that in the show notes. 
There's also a paid service MRAP presentation from earlier in 2021 that also covers this. Bye for now. Oh, hey, you're still here. Awesome. I promise this third case will not disappoint. This actually comes not from myself, but from a colleague that I met while I was taking an ATLS course in California. So this particular guy, I think he worked in the Napa Valley in California, which apparently has lots of roving gangs that like to shoot each other up. And so he is working in a rural emergency department, not unlike Fort St. Nowhere, one evening with a single nurse. And into the empty department rolls a gangbanger. And the guy walks into the emergency department waving a gun around, holding his hand over a gunshot wound in his abdomen. And he's pointing the gun at this doctor and at the nurse saying, you gotta fix me up or I'm gonna kill you, blah, blah, blah. Pretty scary stuff, at least for me as someone who likes to eat Wonder Bread and avoids carbonated beverages. Anyway, as the story was told to me, this doctor ended up examining the patient and discovering this giant gunshot wound in the belly. And the patient was insistent that all he wanted was to be stitched up. He didn't want anything for it because he had to escape. And the doctor had to do it right then and there or there would be consequences. So this doctor was able to convince the guy that it was going to be too painful to just stitch up. And that really he needed to give the guy something just to take the edge off the pain a little bit. And apparently this conversation went on for a minute or two. But he was able to convince the guy to let them start an IV and to give them some pain medication. But the gangbanger was not very trusting, as you would expect. And so he really didn't want anything like morphine or whatever that would sedate him. So he insisted that the doctor and the nurse show him what it was they were giving him. So they showed them the vial of succinylcholine. And sure enough, he allowed them to draw up the succinylcholine, and they gave the succinylcholine as an IV push. Now you can imagine what's going to happen here. So the doctor, as he explained it, said he basically just stood there for about 20 seconds and waited for the arm holding the gun to begin to fall. And as soon as he saw that first sign of loss of muscle control, he took control of the situation, got the gun out of the patient's hand, and let the patient fall onto the floor. He then picked up the patient, put him onto a stretcher, and intubated him, and then sedated him. And that was that. The police came, the gunshot wound was eventually fixed by a surgeon, and so on. So this particular story lives on in my memory, not because it's something that I think will ever happen to me working in rural Canada, but more as an illustration of the level of chaos, of unpredictability that can occur. And the more we think about these types of things, and the more we think about what we would do in these rare, extreme situations, the better prepared we are for when they actually occur. And this harkens back to what I was saying as learning objective number one. When it comes to safety, you have to look after your own priorities first, and then your team, and then the patient. Is it ethical to give succinylcholine straight to a patient? Not at all. But I don't think that medical ethics apply in the situation where your safety and your health is threatened. And this was a brilliant move because here is somebody who is completely unpredictable. You have no idea if other gang members are going to break through your door and there's going to be a full-out gunfight in the middle of emergency or what's going to happen. If this had happened to me before I ever heard about this story, 
I probably would have been so terrified that I would have just sutured the guy up and then hoped for the best. And maybe that means he would have left peacefully. Maybe it means he would have killed everybody so as not to have witnesses. Who knows? It's a very, very scary thought. The way this doctor handled it certainly makes for a great story, but obviously that situation wouldn't be without risk either. At the end of the day, what would have been the correct answer? I'm not sure, but any answer that leads to you and your team walking out safely at the end of the shift is the right answer. So I present this again as an extreme episode. I really hope that no one ever has to go through this ever again, but I hope this plants some seeds in your mind to think about and contemplate what you would do if and when your safety is threatened. All right, bye for now, and for real this time.